As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So, Matt, have you heard the joke about the roof? No. No. Well, I would tell you, but it usually goes over people's heads. <laughs> I, well, I did not see that coming. I was thinking. <laughs> I was thinking. I know what this punchline is going to be, but I couldn't come up. Yeah, with There's got to be something. I just can't figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. (laughs) All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Hot. I hear (laughs) you. I hear you. I know people think, God, man, these guys, they always talk about the weather. We don't. We mention it, but it is, we're having an absolute ridiculous heat wave right now. Mm-hmm. Adam and I both. Um, And it, it, it is, it is miserable hot. I mean, yeah. heat warnings every day to the point I told Adam before we started recording, I was like, I thought about telling everybody that I'm going to, I'm going to record the show shirtless. <laughs> and but I was afraid that we would lose some uh, some members. So yeah, right. You know, so I'm 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 wearing I, I'm wearing just a, the biggest t shirt I have. I think, um, <laughs> you know, just so I I would be able to have a little bit of airflow. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I man, I've been trying to cool off the the graveyard all day with extra fans blowing air in from cooler parts of the room or the house and all that so i uh, it's bad i know a lot a lot of our listeners are in the same same boat so stay Mm -hmm. indoors um stay hydrated um something i learned from doing yard work i was used to mow eight acres in the summer um even as an adult drink pedialyte now i think they have a uh, pedialyte sports drink for adults but they do. Back then, I was just drinking baby Pedialyte, the orange stuff, and it it helps. And they even, uh, I, I've even, uh, I don't know if it if it's labeled this way, but I've seen it in an ad marketed as a hangover cure. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it, that's true too. I don't get hangovers anymore because I'm not dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I figured I out my limit. It, so is so. Uh, 
<laughs> Don't worry about it. All right. So real quick, uh, we want to say go check out the Podbelly Network at podbelly.com. You can find you different shows to listen to. You know, got a list of shows that are, are part of the Podbelly Network, and we're proud to be members of the Podbelly Network. So go check them out, podbelly.com. We also want to thank tonight's sponsor, Every Plate. We will talk a little bit more about them shortly. Matt, that's all I've got. Um, it's going to be a little bit different this episode from our norm. That's We've right. done this before, but why mm-hmm. don't you tell us what are we talking about tonight, brother? Okay, so on September sixteenth, nineteen ninety four, there was a UFO sighting outside of Rua, Zimbabwe. And, you know, Zimbabwe is not one of the places that you typically hear about when you're talking about UFO sightings. But this one in particular is extremely interesting because 62 students at the aerial school aged between 6 and 12 claim that they saw at least one, maybe more, silver craft descend from the sky and land in a field near their school. Yep. And not only that, they reported that they saw creatures emerge from this craft dressed all in black, and they communicated to the children telepathically. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jerome Clark, uh, who's a, a a big paranormal Fortean writer, called this incident "quote the most remarkable close encounter of the third kind of the 1990s." And okay. I, I will agree with that statement. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not one that you you hear about. I mean, you hear about some of the big ones, you know, the the Travis Waltons and and things like that. That's what people think of. But I'm telling you, this one is it is it's incredible. Mm-hmm. When you when you look at what the information they were able to collect after um this particular site. Yeah. Like you're saying, they, you hear about Travis Walton, you hear about, uh, the Phoenix lights a ton more yeah. than you hear about the aerial school sighting. But to me, the aerial school sighting, if you believe it is much more incredible than the Phoenix lights. Oh so yeah. I don't know why it's not as popular as it is. If you are into ufology, you've heard of it for sure. Right. Yeah. But if, if you, aren't really into ufology and maybe you only know the cases that Matt and I talk about. And if that's the case, you may not have heard of this case. And yeah, it it fascinates me. This case has fascinated me since the the day I heard about it. And so I'm, I'm so happy that we're talking about it. And you might've heard of it because it's been, it's been in the news recently because of a, of a of a new documentary mm-hmm. um, that that was just released a few weeks ago, um, so you know if you're if you like docu- documentary films, if if you really keep up with you know new content that's coming out, you you may have come across this. But let's let's kind of get into it, and and as we always say, be sure and check our sources. Uh, you can find all of our sources in the show notes. This is not um, our our opinion on this. You know, we we are just 
we're conveying some information. So if you want to look a little bit deeper, be sure and go check out our sources. Now, the incident, which would become known as the aerial school phenomena in the in the ufology circles, it started out on a fairly normal day. There wasn't anything unusual, September 16th, 1994. But at break time, the, while the teachers were inside uh, at a faculty meeting, some of these children claimed to have seen a silvery disc land on a hill just off of the school property. Mm-hmm. Now, the children reportedly ran to the edge of the school grounds to get a better look with several claiming that they saw figures emerge from what they described as a craft. Now, the children described the event, which they said lasted, you know, as long as 15 minutes. That's amazing. That's amazing in and of itself because a lot of these UFO sightings, they are very short, very quick. Maybe they last a few seconds to a minute. I mean, that's what typical sightings are. 15 Um, seconds, not 15 minutes. Right. Right. 15 seconds. Yeah. But this one, they said, lasted up to 15 minutes. So they had the opportunity to to watch this occur for, you know, a good period of time. Now, after their break had ended, they they went in and they told their teachers who were a little skeptical. Sure. You know, you, you get kids coming in from recess and. You know, they have some story. I can remember doing that when I was like in first or second grade. You know, you get out on the edge of the playground and you see something and you start coming up with all these ideas of what it is. And Mm -hmm. and it's really nothing. And you're you're just playing and letting your imagination run wild. But all of us knew that we were just making this up and having a really good time. Yep. Okay. This was a little different. So the teachers kind of dismissed it, but when they went home and told their parents what they had seen, the next day, the school was flooded with calls with parents going, okay, what did y'all do yesterday? You know, what what was going on? My kid is freaked out. Mm -hmm. And I mean, out of the 62 kids, the, you know, that's a lot of phone calls (laughs) from parents worrying that. Hey, my my child is panicked over something. Tell me what is going on. So that prompted the teachers and the staff to start to look at it a little more seriously. Now, with this prompting and the intervention of a local UFO researcher, uh, the headmaster of the school asked the children to draw what they saw. Now, they came back with some pretty similar images of the silvery classic UFO type craft. And sometimes uh, the drawings were even complete with the alien figures standing around. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so what's remarkable about this is the these drawings were so similar and you can see a, a, a good chunk i don't know if you're, you can see all of them but you're seeing a really good chunk of the pictures that these kids drew um and and they're all a little different but there's enough similarities there to understand that 
these children are all drawing essentially the same thing. Yeah. Now, one child was quoted as saying, it looked like it was glinting in the trees. It looked like a disc, like a round disc. Um, and this was one child uh, in an interview with the BBC just a few days after the incident. He said, I saw something silver on the ground among the trees and a person in black. So, you know, the, and this is very similar to what all the kids were saying. They said two child-sized creatures with skin-tight black suits emerged from the vessel, moving in unnatural ways. Some of the kids described them as blinking in and out of existence. Others described fluid, floaty movements as if gravity didn't affect them. Either way, that's not something that a human could necessarily do. Right. It's um, not moving like you would if it was just a human walking across the field. They they wouldn't be seeing this weird time dilation or something like that. Right. And you know, my takeaway from that, from the description of these uh, figures, is that a, a child would have a hard time explaining this kind of behavior, especially True. this blinking in and out of existence. True. Okay. Um, so with multiple children explaining it that way, that lends a lot of credence to what they reported that they saw. Mm -hmm. Okay. And along with the, the ones that said they were fluid floaty movements, um, you know, that's just not something that if it, if it was, if it was humans, you know, that they mistook for, you know, alien beings, I, they wouldn't have described their movements in this way. No, no. You know, now if they said, well, they, they walked funny or they jerked around. Okay. Maybe a human could do that. Yeah. But this blinking in and out of existence or this floating movement. Uh-uh. But, know, so. and, and you got to think at the time, would these kids have watched anything or heard anything that would make them describe things like that? And it's highly unlikely. So yeah. for them to say, oh, it, it was blinking in and out of existence, you know, mm -hmm. describing like a light turning on and off. Mm -hmm. being a, mm -hmm. uh, a, a human turning on and off a humanoid yeah. that way that like you said lends a lot of credence to it because that to me says they witnessed this they didn't make this up mm -hmm. so some of the students actually made eye contact with the creatures and said they they felt like they were unable to look away like they were in a trance and those kids also claim to have received telepathic messages from the beings telling them to take better care of the planet. Now, some of the descriptions of what the message was uh, include this idea of you're using technology incorrectly and it's leading on a path of destruction, essentially. So you mean um, technology is not for 
kitty cat pictures and and nudie pics? <laughs> uh, I got a feeling that that's probably okay. Oh, okay, good. But I think what I think what they're what they're making what what the message is is that you know that the at least what I take from it is that you have the technology to improve this planet. Mm-hmm. You're you're not using it that way. And and the technology that you're developing is actually destroying the planet. Yeah. You know, yeah. so if if we're thinking about, um, you know, global warming or um, pollution, uh, you know, uh, I- impacting the ozone layer, chemicals in the water, just n- numerous things that have all worsened, you know, in the last 50 years because of different technologies. That's that's what I think this is referring to. Um, you know, it's not like we're going to come and and blow your planet away. It it was basically a change your ways, or this is going to be bad. And you know, thinking along those lines, if that's the message that they're sending, what better group than the next set of kid? You know, that's going to grow up and and learn and and study and then maybe be able to change the world what better group why would you go to right. some some old fogies out somewhere you know in the middle of nowhere go to go to a school with children and tell them that and then they'll yeah. learn it and take that with them yeah and and we'll touch on that later about why in particular they if if this if this is something that actually happened why they would have landed near a school we'll we'll kind of talk about that too but adam adam is already on the path that you know of the way i feel about it but as i said the children were aged between somewhere between 6 and 12 they they ran inside and the the as i said the school staff didn't believe it but eventually the kids um were were divided up um so they didn't have a lot of opportunity that first day for them to all group up and form their story mm-hmm. and and go yeah yeah that's what it was or oh they had these big bulging eyes oh that's right that's right i remember that now i remember that now so you, you can you can do that with anything you know you you let people get together and then they start forming their story and then their story is is even more similar uh than what it is but they they separated them out when they asked them to draw what they saw right and so that first they day they didn't have a lot of opportunity yeah. right that first day to to give a little more credence to your point there that they couldn't talk about it much the aerial school was all grade levels. So yeah. the children who saw it, like you said, were not all the same age. So these kids, they were, you know, two or three from this grade, two or three from this grade, a handful from this grade. So they would be split up after recess to go to back to their grades yeah. and they wouldn't all be able to sit there and come up with the, with the story with each other. Mm-hmm. So that adds a little more credibility to the drawings that you're talking about because right. they were even 
and not just split up to tell the stories. They were immediately split up to go their separate ways for class, even yeah. before they started taking it seriously. Yeah. And when you look at the drawings, you can tell this one looks like it was drawn by a first or second yep. grader. This one was drawn by a little older child, maybe fourth, fifth or sixth grade. Um, but you can still see the similarities in the drawing. Right. I mean, the the key features are there. So you you can actually, even though maybe the skill level wasn't there or wasn't equal, you can still see the similarities because the main aspects of the story were included in the picture. Right. Okay. Now, the story gets a little more complicated from here. The children were interviewed by a local UFO researcher named Cynthia Hind, and that occurred the day after the event. So they've only had maybe not even 24 hours. Okay, the kids all went home, and then Cynthia Hine came to the school the next day. Now, what Hine found curious was that the students who had all kinds of different backgrounds, um, they were all from fairly well-to-do families because the, you know, aerial school was, was private um, and it was quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they at least had that in common. Um, but despite their upbringing differences, they still were able to relate the same story. Right. Now, some of the some of the students again based on their upbringing thought that the figures were uh zvikvambo which are human spirits that were raised by magic hmm. okay or they said they were uh tokalashi which are evil evil goblin creatures of uh shona and nebile folklore Man, you you gotta you I, I gotta get some credit. If I said uh that last one correctly, <laughs> which which I'm almost positive I didn't. Um, <laughs> but maybe it's close. <laughs> so be- because of the, the local folklore and things like that, some of these kids actually didn't think they were looking at aliens, they were looking at these creatures. Right. Now, Hind believes that these different interpretations, accompanied with similar drawings and descriptions, gave more credibility to the idea that the children had seen a similar event. I agree, okay? Because if if we're talking about a, a group of kids that didn't understand exactly what they were seeing, and some thought aliens, some thought uh, spirits, another thought virtually a cryptid, um, they were all different, but they all described the similar event. That tells me that they weren't influenced by media, movies, Bingo. books, yep. whatever. Um, that they all immediately went to UFO. Bingo. Because if they made it up and they concocted the story with each other, they all would have said it was the same thing. Yeah. They all would have said UFO and aliens. But That's since what they, I think. Yeah, yeah, since they didn't, that gives a little more proof to me that mm-hmm. they witnessed something and then their brains tried to make sense of what it was. So they went spirit. Some did go alien. Some went, like you said, cryptid. So that 
just put that in the in the purse of credibility there. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But it also bolstered Hines theory um, that these kids would not have had access to media about UFOs, which would have tainted their testimony mm-hmm. or given them these images in their imaginations. Um, because, you know, Hind would tell the TV show sightings. A lot of these children don't go to the movies. They right. live in the country. Their parents are farmers. You know, the argument being that if they had not encountered these images before and then described something similar, um, it, it gives more credibility to their encounter being real. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, after Hind came a Harvard professor of psychiatry named John Mack. Now, John Mack would, he was a Pulitzer Prize winning author and the head of the Harvard Medical School's Department of Psychiatry. Okay. So this guy had some clout. Yep. But when Mack began studying ufology, specifically alien abductions, his career took kind of a hit. Because... Mm. Harvard didn't really care for uh, Mac um, writing and discussing the idea of alien abductions um, with Harvard uh, professor of psychiatry coming right after his name. Yeah. And they kind of felt like it was giving Harvard a black eye um, because what they called his woo research. That's such a shame. That upsets me so much. I know, but that's why we can't Harvard. Yeah, but that's why we can't get anywhere in this field is because anybody who takes anything paranormal, UFO related or cryptid related seriously in academia and tries to study it, they're relegated to the crazies and then the school or the institution washes their hands of them. Yeah. And that makes them seem crazy to the public because the school's getting rid of them. So, see, in my mind, I when I hear something like this, I always picture the, the scene from Ghostbusters where they come in and the university staff is cleaning out their offices and uh, Bill Murray says, uh, yeah, I assume we're being moved to better quarters on campus. And he's like, no, you're being moved off campus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so they, they didn't want that at the university. Right. Um, you know, that was the stance Harvard took. Um, now, Mac had been investigated by Harvard previous to this uh, for giving credence to the idea that patients who had reported a close encounter with an extraterrestrial life form um, that it might have might well have been real is, is what he said. So what, what Mac was doing is he was seeing these patients, these psychiatric patients, and they're describing um, an alien encounter that they had um, as a psychiatrist or in, in the, in the field of psychiatry, they're looking at that as, it's uh, it's manufactured as a result of some type of mental illness. And Max saying, maybe not. You know, maybe we need to listen to these people. You know, let's let's give them a forum, let them speak, and let let's look into this. Harvard was like, no way, man, we're not doing this. 
You know, we're yep. we're talking about um, people that are suffering from you know of varied mental illnesses. You need to treat them, not feed this you know this outlandish idea that they were abducted or or met a, an alien life form. Well, you know, again, as Adam said, you know they they poo poo a lot of that research, and you know it dies on the vine. But through the testimony that Mac collected, a, a, a new idea emerged. When talking to the professor who had recently published a book on UFOs and was also heavily invested in this topic, the children reported receiving the telepathic messages from the aliens, as I mentioned earlier, along with the idea that it was an environmental message. So this really intrigued uh, this really intrigued Mac, and it and it you know pushed him even harder. But he was criticized for his interview techniques and the fact that he arrived in Zimbabwe months after the incident occurred, which skeptics felt gave these kids too much time to allow them to discuss the incident among themselves and consolidate, you know, a main story. Which we'll talk about toward the end of this episode. I, I want right. to touch on that some too. Right. So um, Cynthia Hind was also criticized for her technique as she interviewed the children in groups of four or six instead of one-on-one where each individual story could be evaluated and compared to the others, um, which I, I would have liked that to have happened too. Yeah. Okay. Um, but again, we're talking about 62 children that at the time, you know, they're in school. This, that may not have even been reasonable, Yeah. you know, to one by one sit down with each individual student and get their story. I think something like that, if, if this happened now, um, as opposed to, you know, 30 years ago, maybe that would more be more likely to occur mm -hmm. just because e even though, um, the research that's involved in, in UFOs, um, it, it's still not, it, it's still kind of looked down upon, you know, in the scientific circles. I, I think there is, there are enough, um, quality journalists, investigators, scientists to where they would say, this is what we need to do. Yeah. You know, Our we, understanding we, of best practices has got sure. better. Yeah. And even when we're talking about something like this and say, I think it was just, you know, Hind was working alone. Mac was working alone. Mm -hmm. You know, and nowadays you, you would have an entire team yeah. dedicated to doing this. Um, but clips of Max interviews with the children are available on YouTube. I, I watch several of them. They're, they're really fascinating. They're also seen in Randall Nickerson's new documentary called aerial phenomenon, which was released just last month. Now the documentary, it rests heavily on the archival interviews of the children taken from the days and weeks following the sighting. Um, the similarity in their statements and the visible fear that some of the children show when they're 
talking about it, it's it's really compelling. I mean, mm-hmm. you can. Well, I don't know with every kid, but I, I know my kids. You can really tell when they are spinning some yarn, yeah, uh, for your consumption. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you can just tell. And Amanda's really good because she'll go. <laughs> I smell baloney, and you know most of the time that elicits a smile, and so we know this is all mm-hmm. just made up. Um, but as is the view of their teachers, the vast majority of those that explain why they believe the children are not lying go to this. They said they, you know, they were frightened by it. Um, you know, their stories are very similar. They weren't exposed to a lot of the media. So the teachers eventually came around and said, you know, these kids aren't making this up. They saw something. Right. Now, Nickerson anchors the documentary in a few key subjects, mainly the student Emily Trim. Now, Trim was one of the school children who witnessed the encounter. Uh, soon after the event, her family packed up and moved to Canada. Hmm. Okay. Boy, you can't, you can't get a lot further away from Zimbabwe than Canada. I was about to say the same thing. I'm like, they got the <laughs> heck out of there. Like for real, they, yeah. they left. But Nickerson follows Trim as she returns to the aerial school to help make her peace with the memories that she has of the event. Now, focusing on Trim really humanizes this story and it's easy to look at the aerial incident as an exciting event but one thing you have to remember is these were children some as young as six years old so Mm -hmm. the experience in a lot of ways was a burden for them you know because they had to grow up with these feelings of confusion adults not believing them which At that, at those ages can cause a lot of self-doubt, causes a lot of fear of being made fun of or ridiculed. Um, so that's really tough on, on a on a on a kid that's that's growing up and dealing with enough of the problems that kids have. Now they have this on yeah. their plate to manage as well. I was gonna say they probably got talked down to a lot mm-hmm. by other kids and adults because yeah. they you know telling them they're they're crazy they didn't see what they saw and that'll that gets into kids heads i mean yeah. you, you tell them that they didn't see what they saw enough and that gets to them well and unfortunately it usually drives kids to to stop talking or sharing mm-hmm. a, about an event but it also makes them wary about sharing other things. Yeah. You know, so, you know, something traumatic happens to them. They're less likely to, you know, tell an adult about it because in the past, the adults didn't believe me. Um, they said I was lying or making this up. Then, you know, why would I tell them about this? Cause they're going to do the same thing. Yep. Exactly. Okay? So that, that was problematic for a lot of these kids and some of them, just buried the incident, refused to share any any information about it, and didn't even tell their spouses, you know, to this day. Yeah. You know, some of them said they, they kept it, you know, they just 
said, no, I'm not talking about it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to discuss it. Nothing. Mm. Adam, you know, one of the things that, that I dislike so much is trying to decide what we're going to have for dinner and then having to go to the grocery store and buy all the stuff to make dinner. Mm-hmm. It is such a pain. I mean, it drives me nuts. And and every th- groceries are so expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, you you go and you just if you know if I don't use everything now, I'm, I'm I need three of these and I have to buy a dozen of them, and those other nine are going to go to waste. Yep. And you've spent all that money. Well. You know how we solve that? With every plate. And if you've listened to this show, you know that Adam and I are huge fans of every plate. Um, it's owned by HelloFresh, in case you didn't know. Um, but what every plate is, it's a meal delivery service where you're sent the recipes and, and fresh ingredients uh, for meals right to your door. And right. you don't have to worry about getting a lot of extra stuff that you don't need or that's going to go to waste. Plus, every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. That's amazing. I'm, yeah. So it's called America's Best Value Kit. And, you know, we're talking about delicious dinners that don't break the bank. Um, so if you think that meal kits have to be expensive, check out every plate. It's more affordable than groceries. Um and their quality ingredients come pre-portioned to help you save money and reduce that food waste. Um, like just like a, the bag of spinach that we wind up throwing out because oh, yeah. it gets all slimy. Yep. You know? Yep. And the cool thing is you can choose between 17 recipes that change each week. You can swap proteins and sides to your liking. So you can switch up your dinner routine however you want. And like they say, life's too short for boring dinner. And that's true. We got our every plate box the other day and dude we had a smothered pork chops with mashed potatoes oh my god you it's like an inch and a half thick pork chop and they wow. you make this brown gravy with caramelized onions in it and it's got mashed potatoes and carrots and you just drench it in gravy and way to my heart is pork chops yeah. and gravy i'm telling you that <laughs> it was amazing yeah. And as we speak, Madison is making the cherry-glazed pork meatballs. So Mm. when we're done here, I'm having every plate for dinner. And I know it's going to be fantastic. Oh, yeah. It always is. Now, if you want to try every plate along with Matt and I and our families, then you can do that, and you can do it for just $1.79 per meal. All you got to do is go to everyplate.com and enter our promo code GRAVEYARD179. That's G-R-A-V-E-Y-A-R-D-179. That's right. Get started with every plate for only $1.79 per meal. What a bargain. All you have to do is go to everyplate.com and enter our promo code GRAVEYARD179. That's G-R-A-V-E-Y-A-R-D-179. One seven nine. Now, uh, Trim's presence in this documentary forces viewers to look at how the events impact 
really affected these kids' lives. She processes what happened that day by creating art, and she's produced a body of work inspired by this encounter. Now, Trim um, channels her complicated feelings onto canvases, creating physical depictions of her inner struggles. And it's said that this is about as close as we'll ever get to being inside the head of one of these uh, experiencers. Um, so, you know, Emily Trim has found a way to to deal with it, mm-hmm. um, you know, by expressing her emotions through art. And, you know, that that's cathartic for her. Yeah. But she's only one out of the 62 kids that that had to grow up dealing with this. And, and so we, we talk about this in other shows, especially with UFO encounters that are people just looking for attention, you know, sure. Kids seek attention, especially from adults and coming in with a story like this, um, would absolutely garner some attention, good or bad. Yeah. But I can't imagine that all 62 of these kids would have been willing to do that or, or, or would have even thought about it. Yeah. Or to stick with it as long as they did. Cause right. if, if they just made it up, they would probably with all the ridicule and all that, they would have, somebody would have come back and said, no, it was all a lie. We made it all up. Uh, yeah, exactly. You, you made that point. Um, cause I thought the same thing I thought in, in all this time, you couldn't expect 62 children that have now grown into adulthood to go along with this big of a lie. Yeah. One of them. I mean, even all it takes is just one to come mm-hmm. out and go, we made it up. We, yeah. we, we all sat there. How in the heck could you get that many kids of that, those, that broad of an age range to agree on that. Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, a 12 year old and a six year old, no chance. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and at least somewhere along the way, one or, or more is going to say, nah, it didn't happen, but that hasn't happened. Right. Okay. You right. know, you're, you may get them that they don't want to talk about it, but the people that don't want to talk about it, you know, that, that really, to me, it gives it a little bit more validity because you can tell that they were affected by it yeah. to the point that they don't want to discuss it anymore. And those people that don't want to discuss it would be the first ones to come out and say they made it up and they have yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people could look at that as like, oh, yeah, they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to get caught in this lie. Well, I'm like. Look, if, if if it's affected them so much that they absolutely don't want to talk about it, then all, all they really would have to do is to just come forward and say, nope, we all made it up and be done with it and move on yep. with their lives. Yep, exactly. Now, I found this interesting fact um, about not only um, this the aerial school report, but other school-related UFO sightings, okay? In 1966, approximately 200 students and staff reported seeing 
uh, a cigar-shaped UFO land near their school in Melbourne, Australia. Okay. A similar report came from a Miami, Florida school in 1967, just a year later. But there was also a case in Great Britain with a report of a UFO landing near a school in 1977. And in that one, some kids also claimed to have seen strange beings outside of the craft. Hmm. So as I mentioned earlier, we we were kind of thinking about why this happened at a school. Yeah. And, you know, Adam touched on the point, who better to tell if your message is, you know, save the planet, you know, who better to tell than the next generation of people that could actually do something about it? Right. And right. I, I think that I think that's a solid point. Yeah, I mean it it's I don't know. To me that that would be if I was an extraterrestrial and I was wanting to pass it on, I wouldn't pass it on to the generation that is doing the stuff that I don't want done. <laughs> that's right. You know, I they've got a vested interest to keep doing it. Yeah, they're lost cause. They invented this, they whatever, so they don't want to change. So let me go to their kids and let me convince their kids not to follow that same path, you know, to to better the environment, to better use this technology. And I don't know, it, it just, to me, it makes sense. Yeah. You know, as a, as a parent, you're like, look, you leave my damn kid alone. Don't don't you be landing on this planet and coming and talking to my my son about what to do with the environment. Yeah. You know, you you can talk to my kid through me, thank you very much. Uh-huh. But, you know, it it and trying to look at it put my alien brain on, then I I can see that intent there. Yeah. Um but another theory about why they would have landed near school, and I like this one too, is if they had observed uh, human behavior on this planet, um, the idea of, of landing it near where world leaders would be, they would have probably been worried that they wouldn't have even gotten their message out because they could have been attacked. Right. I mean, you know, they're looking down at this planet and they're looking at war and you know mm-hmm. all all kinds of uh aggression. Well, we're certainly not going to go land on, you know, the, the you know, the lawn of the White House or the Kremlin or any anywhere else like that. Yeah, no kidding. Um, because they're liable to shoot first and ask questions later. Mhm. Um but if if they observe long enough, You know, we go to a school, we go to a school where there's children, there's not going to be aggression and these children may be more receptive to us being here and the message that we have. So, I I mean, I like that idea too, you know? Yep. Yep. So there, there's a lot of, a lot of people that want to debunk, I mean, debunk anything paranormal or anything UFO related, but one of the, the claims that I, I kept seeing, and I know Matt saw it too, cause we talked about it. One of the claims that tries to debunk 
this aerial school sighting is mass hysteria. And, you know, Always. Matt and I, yeah, Always. We, we have our feelings about mass hysteria when it comes to stuff like this, but we've never really dove into what mass hysteria is and, and considered it that way. So I want to look at it. I, I've got some snippets from the National Library of Medicine. So mm-hmm. this this explains what the actual definition of mass hysteria is. And then we'll talk about it afterward. But like I said, from the National Library of Medicine, links in the show notes. It says mass hysteria is the common term used to describe a situation in which various people all suffer from similar unexplained symptoms. Hysterical contagion, which it's also known as, consists of a quick dissemination within a collection of people of a symptom or a set of symptoms for which no physical explanation can be found. So keep some of these definitions in mind because this is going to come up here in a second. Um, Mass hysteria typically begins when an individual becomes ill or hysterical during a period of stress. After this initial individual shows symptoms, others begin to manifest similar symptoms. Symptoms recorded during outbreaks of mass hysteria include abdominal pains, chest tightness, dizziness, fainting, headaches, hyperventilation, nausea, vomiting, palpitations, anxiety, uh, conversion disorder, and screaming. Mass hysteria is a social phenomenon often occurring among otherwise healthy people who suddenly believe they have been made ill by some external factor. It Mm -hmm. spreads by sight or sound and occurs most often among adolescents or pre-adolescents. So. Conversion disorder. Are you familiar with that? No. So conversion disorder is where you believe that you have some type of ailment so strongly that you begin to manifest the symptoms of it. Okay. Okay. So. Um, Then I know it. I just didn't know it by that name. So I actually had a patient years ago that was diagnosed with conversion disorder. She was paralyzed from the waist down. Okay. There was absolutely no physical evidence that she should be Mm -hmm. paralyzed at all. There wasn't any kind of trauma. Okay. She just woke up one day. And she couldn't move her legs or feel anything below the waist. Yep. And I remember seeing her and I'm like pinching her toes. I'm, I'm using uh, like the tips on calipers to touch and to see if she can discern, you know, how, how far apart does it feel like two things are touching you instead of one? She couldn't feel anything. Um, couldn't move, didn't move. And, and a lot of times you, you try to do things to catch somebody faking. You couldn't mm-hmm. catch her faking. Right. But all the tests said that she's fine. There is nothing causing her to be paralyzed. Everything is fine. But, you know, she couldn't move. She couldn't feel. It's the, so, the placebo effect in a in sense. Um, yeah. It's like a reverse placebo. Yeah. Yeah. And it it's. And I think you and I have talked about this before off mic, but it's your brain 
can do some amazing things. And if you think you're sick long enough, you'll become sick. If people sit there and uh, think they've got strep throat long enough, their throat's going to start hurting, whatever. But it also works in the opposite, where mm-hmm. if you're sick and you think, I'm not sick, I don't feel bad, I, I feel better, my throat doesn't hurt, sometimes you can make yourself better yeah. that way, too. That, and that's the whole mind over matter idea. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You know, like these guys that you see walking on hot coals, you know, they believe that however they can do it, that it's not going to burn them and it doesn't. Right. Um, you know, it, it's it's really, really odd. But the hysterical pregnancy, you've heard that term before, mm-hmm. um, where uh, a, a woman can believe so strongly that she's pregnant. That yeah. she actually, her body actually begins to believe it's pregnant, even though yep. there's there's no baby, but the the physiological changes that occur during a pregnancy begin to happen to her body because mm-hmm. her mind is convinced that she's pregnant, yep. and so it begins to do the things that it would normally do. So right. understanding that, you know, we 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 know that. Some of these things can manifest if the belief is strong enough. But the the situations that that I brought up, it's one individual, one person's brain. Right. So right. is it reasonable to to loop that in with this idea of mass hysteria that the, a, a large group of people can all manifest the exact same thing? Um, yeah, um, there. I, I think in in most cases probably not, but um, let me finish this article and then uh, we'll talk about why why I think it can happen, but I don't think it's happening in this sense. Okay. Because um, this says in groups of students, its incidence re- uh, is reportedly higher among girls than boys. Uh, symptoms often follow an environmental trigger or illness in an index case and spread rapidly by audiovisual cues, often aggravated by a prominent emergency or media response. Symptoms frequently resolve after patients are separated from each other removed from the environment in which the outbreak began and after being convinced that the illness is over or never existed. Literature suggests that mass hysteria episodes have frequently occurred in Africa. Now, epidemics of hysteria rely on the power of suggestion, but they are nourished by fear, sadness, and anxiety. Victims tend to be subjected to severe psychological strain over the preceding weeks or months, one or more then develop a psychosomatic symptom, and those made suggestible by pent-up anxiety quickly follow suit. Before long, dozens are vomiting, fainting, and screaming. The strain of exams is a common trigger. Reports suggest that in many African schools, pupils are placed under such extreme pressure that mass hysteria has become virtually endemic. Now, here here's my problem okay this this article from 
the medical text, it describes physical ailments, Mm -hmm. physical symptoms spreading through mass hysteria. Okay. And we've seen historical cases of this, like with the dancing plague. You remember that story of people Uh dancing till they dropped because of some hysteria thing. Okay, all of the examples they gave were of an illness, upset stomach, vomiting, Mm -hmm. dizziness, something like that. The aerial school is not that. The aerial school is seeing something happen in front of them. It's not a physical ailment to themselves. Also, these kids were separated. They went home. Mm -hmm. They were told by adults that didn't happen. And yet they still believed it and they still believe it to this day, 30 some odd years later. Right. So this does not fit any of the quote mass hysteria guidelines that the medical text has put forward. So like we've said before, if you're going to get multiple witnesses, 62 children Mm -hmm. to hysterically see the same thing. That doesn't seem plausible to me because the brain, if you see a stick and you're going to make something up, some people are going to say this stick is a snake. Some are going to say this stick is a spear Because not everybody's brain is wired the same way to see the same thing in their imagination. So I I think, in my opinion, the mass hysteria thing does not fit at all with this case that we're looking at. The evidence does not point to mass hysteria because none of these kids got ill and vomited and then everybody got ill and vomited or whatever. It's not anything like that. It's they saw something and they continue to believe that they saw it, even though they're not in that environment. They're not under the same stresses. Right. Now, I'll I'll give you the fact that, okay, perhaps more cases of mass hysteria do happen in Africa because of the stresses they're put under in the schools. But we're talking dizziness, fainting, something like that where kids will go through that, not what we're talking about here in the aerial school incident. And would the stress that a 12-year-old would feel be equivalent to a six or a seven-year-old? True. Probably not. I mean, think about when you were 12. I mean, you know, what, Mm -hmm. what your body was going through, what your hormones were going through, you know, how you felt, um, you know, maybe even the, the, well, I know because I live with a 12-year-old. The <laughs> the conflict that you deal with between your parents, because at 12, you know, that is the age where you know everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, you are an expert on absolutely every topic, and all of these adults are idiots, okay? At six or seven, you don't believe that necessarily. Now, would a, would a 12-year-old student have some influence over you know, a six or seven year old student. Sure. Okay. Yeah. But not all of them. And what about all the ones in the middle there? Okay. Right. That are at different stages in their, uh, psychological development 
are you going to be able to to get all of those people to agree? Like, you know, the points you made about the stick. I don't think so. Plus, we're you know, in in your your cases of of mass hysteria, you know, we're talking about several days or even weeks of similar stress placed on these people to develop these symptoms. You know, they're not going to have endured a similar stress for that period of time altogether. Right. Okay. Um, and what about when they go home? Would right. the influence of the 12 year old on the six year old continued to the house where that six year old wouldn't tell the parent, Oh, Joe is making me say this, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I mean, I know Michael, if he'd have had that happen, he would have come home. He may have said something at school, made something up at school around his peers, mm-hmm. but he would tell us when he got home that so-and-so was making all these kids say this thing happened and it didn't really happen and mm-hmm. he's going mm-hmm. along with it or he doesn't want to go something like that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but I found another little article too that talks about the potential um, mass hysteria thing. And the article goes into episodes of mass hysteria in several different African schools over uh, many years um, that they say are caused by the amounts of stress that they have to endure. But here's an excerpt from the part that was about the aerial school incident. Now you can go read the rest of the cases. If you're interested, the links down there with all the other links, but this is the one, Matt, I was telling you before we started that it kind of, it, it it contradicts itself. It's in an article about proving mass hysteria incidents, yet what it says kind of goes against that. So, so let's look at it. So this is the Zimbabwe um, part in the, in the article. It says in 1994, 62 school children all reported seeing an alien craft land and extraterrestrials, extraterrestrial creatures emerge. Virtually every single one of the 62 children iterated the exact same story with same details, and none of them had gone against his or her story to this day. Many dismissed the 1994 incident as mass hysteria affecting the children, but when the children were found to not have much prior knowledge of UFOs, or popular UFO perception, many other people believe that what the children witnessed could have been real. Mm-hmm. So it's in a case about, or in an article about different mass hysteria cases, but even they can't, you know, it's like they don't feel right saying that's mass hysteria because the 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 key points of a mass hysteria event are not there. Right. Yeah, I I agree with that. Now, um, I want to look real quick. The um, the last couple I want to look at um, of debunking theories here. And this is from Brian Dunning of the Skeptoid podcast. As his podcast title is leading to he. He debunks a lot of stuff, gives his reasons for debunking it, and he he does do a lot of research. Got to give him that. But I don't necessarily agree with his assessment here. Um, he wrote about the case. Again, links down in the bottom if you want to read his whole um, 
article, and he dis, um, discusses that the way the interviews were done was flawed mm-hmm. and influenced by the interviewer's own bias, which is what Matt was touching on earlier, that, that people blamed the way the interviews were done on the the results of the interview being so similar. But let's look at what he says, and then I, I want to get your take on it, Matt. He says that maybe an alien spaceship did land there that day and communicate telepathically to this handful of children. Or maybe a couple of strangers strolled through the nearby field and maybe a stray party balloon floated past. We'll never really have any good idea of what did or didn't happen on that day, if anything happened at all. Keeping in mind that, quote, nothing at all is what three quarters of the students reported. The actual events are buried under a nationwide UFO frenzy triggered by the rocket reentry under the hopelessly incompetent story sharing sessions of Cynthia Hind and under the skilled promptings of Harvard University's resident expert in persuading people that they had an actual alien encounter. As far as serving as evidence of alien visitation, the 1994 Rua-Zimbabwe encounter falls just a little bit short. So, I want to get your thoughts on this before I say anything. What What are your thoughts on his take on this? Well, I number one, I, I, I yes, out of out of all the students, when you look at it, only sixty two reported seeing anything. It doesn't say that the other ones were also looking and said no, there was nothing there. They just yep. did not see it. Right. Okay. They may not have even been on the, the playground at that, the time. That's right. Or they may have been involved in something else and mm-hmm. didn't give a flip that all these other students were running over here to the edge of the property um, to try to get a look at something. So, I, you know, I don't think that is in, as as critical a point as, as Dunning makes it out to be. Um, now, with... With the interview techniques um, from Cynthia Hind and and Doctor Mack, I, I just yeah, yeah, I mean they're they're not perfect, um, but you're also dealing with kids. But when you watch the interviews, you're not hearing a lot of leading questions. I mean, you're you're seeing an interviewer give these children the opportunity to explain in their own words what they saw. Okay. So they're not, well, did you see, uh, you know, an alien creature? You know, it's really not that way. It's, you know, they describe what they saw and then it's like, well, what do you think it was? And they, they go on, you know, they tell Mm -hmm. you, we don't know what it was, but this is what it looked like. And, that's not something we've ever seen before. Right. So, um, and, and calling Mac, you know, a, an expert in persuading people that they'd had an actual alien encounter, you know, Mac's idea was let's not dismiss the people that say they've had an alien encounter, Mm -hmm. you know, not to convince people that that's what it was, you know, so, 
you know, he was he was scrutinized for the idea that some of these psychiatric patients were having problems because they had an alien encounter. They weren't having an alien encounter because they had a mental illness. Right. You know, that they were struggling with the idea that they had had this encounter and were having difficulty coming to terms with it. And, you know, whether you did or whether you didn't, if you believe that you did, then maybe you did. You know, even even if it's just in your mind. So, you know, Mac's idea is, you know, look, we tell these people you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you're sick, you just need treatment, medication, whatever. Um, you know, you discredit virtually anything they say. And as a patient, you're going to be like, well, look, this guy doesn't listen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so why would I pursue any further treatment? Because if, if this doctor doesn't listen to me, why would I, why, why would these other dozen listen to me? You know? No. So, um, I, I, I don't think that, and you know, and, and, and in all fairness, you know, I, I have not dug into max research or anything else, but with what I was able to find, it, it doesn't appear that he was taking patients and convincing them that this was, you know, what had happened to them, even if they didn't, think that already so well here here's my thing on on calling him harvard university's resident expert in persuading people um you hit on most everything that i was going to say but if he was this expert in persuading people especially that it was a ufo then why were there multiple explanations for what this was? Yeah. You know, we already talked about the children. Some children thought it was a goblin. Some children thought it was a ghost. Some children thought it was a UFO. If he was persuading them in his interviews, wouldn't they all come back and say it was aliens? Yeah. If he was an expert in persuading, he would have persuaded them that it was aliens and a UFO. Mm-hmm. And there wouldn't be these contradictory thoughts on what it was. I mean, that that's just, just my opinion. Um, but the last one to touch on here, get your thought on Matt. Some people have said all the students witnessed was a bus with a few men getting out of it and walking <laughs> in the field. Which makes no sense at all. To no. Me. None. And because, you know, the students would have, easily recognized a bus yeah and maybe would probably have, ride them every day yeah and and would have if if the people getting off the bus were the oddity then that's where their focus would have been and they wouldn't have worried so much about drawing a craft you know they would have been more interested in drawing the the the, the figures and maybe maybe some of their behavior but to say that it was a school bus, something as common as a school bus mm-hmm. or a bus of any type. So I think he may not be necessarily saying a school bus. Let's let's take, for example, like a Greyhound bus, you know, a charter bus. 
you know, big, silver, cigar-shaped. Okay. But they virtually all said it was it was round in some fashion and, and even disc-shaped, which does not fit in uh, if we're talking about, you know, a big silver chartered bus. Well, even if the little kids didn't know that that was a bus, mm-hmm. they would have known it was a vehicle of some kind. They sure. would have seen it driving. Yeah. It would have driven up and driven off. It wouldn't have flown up and flown off. Right. Yeah. So I I, I don't know where that that theory just seems like not not even low hanging fruit. That fruit is on the ground beginning to ferment. Yeah. Um, in my opinion. Yeah. That's just somebody <laughs> that's a cynic brushing it off, not wanting to put any time into thinking about it. They're like, ah, they just saw a bus and some people. Right. They're, they're dumb kids. Yeah. But I don't know. It, last thing I'll really say is that I think these kids saw something that could be considered paranormal. Mm-hmm. It This was not a normal thing in their environment that they're used to seeing, like a bus or a balloon or anything of that nature. I don't think that they were heavily influenced by their interviewers. Yeah. I, you know, could they have been influenced some? Sure. Absolutely. But I think the fact that 62 kids described the same thing and drew the same thing from different angles, mind you, some of them showed from their angle it was behind some trees behind two trees but you see another one and the trees are beside it so they're drawing the same thing from the view that they saw it at Mm -hmm. they're drawing the same looking creatures and this is kids from different grades from different backgrounds from everything like that and to this day they will sit with interviewers and describe the same thing right none of them got rich off of it none of them made any money they're not in movies most of them still live near rua zimbabwe so they're not it's not like they made it up and then they stuck with it just because it was getting them famous Mm -hmm. and and i think the time that has passed and the fact that their stories have stayed the same and the fact that it's all different backgrounds of children and all this stuff that to me puts more credibility in this case than a bunch of other cases. And then a bunch of other people want to put into this case. Mm -hmm. I I can't, I, I can't see the holes that they're trying to punch in it being true holes if right. that makes sense yeah makes perfect sense to me um and and i agree with you wholeheartedly on, on every point that you made um but you know this is the time where we ask you guys what do you believe um is this is this a story you've heard before and have you already formed an opinion is it something new um and you, you've never heard it before but maybe you have an idea of what you think they saw or that all of these kids are telling the truth and they actually saw something. Let us know. And one of the best mm-hmm. places to do that 
is in our Facebook group. Just go on Facebook, search uh, Graveyard Tales. You will find our group. It is called The Graveyard. Well over 6,000 members in The Graveyard. Uh, it is extraordinarily active. It's one of the best groups out there. It's a safe place for you to share your your stories, your personal experiences, your theories, any of that stuff. Um, you're not going to be made fun of. Everybody in the in the graveyard just wants to hear these cool stories and experiences. Um, yep. And, and uh, when you do that, you can also go and check us out on other social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, just again, to search Graveyard Tales. And you can uh, take a look at our website, which is graveyardpodcast.com. And there you'll find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise. You can listen to the show and you can become a patron. And as we mentioned earlier, um, we appreciate all the all the people that have donated to the work that Adam and I do. Um, and, uh, you know, Patreon members get access to bonus episodes. Uh, we've got a pretty large catalog now. You get a video of Adam and I recording the show and video of the Patreon and bonus episodes. Um, so it, it, it's, it's well worth it. You know, if it, mm -hmm. you know, you, you get a pretty good bang for your buck and we try to keep that going, um, you know, with, with regular extra episodes, uh, that are a lot of fun, a little bit more casual than, uh, than the usual mainstream show. Right. Yeah. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, it's the best way to get us up the chart, makes it easier for people to find the show, and it brings more folks into the graveyard. So, until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.